I'm Tavin Nasir, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a podcast that provides insights and tools to help leaders take on the challenges and opportunities found in leading today's workplaces. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tavin Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that offers keynotes and corporate trainings in both in-person and virtual settings that will help you to improve the way you lead and guide your organization's growth and future successes. Now, if you've been enjoying my podcast and the insights and tools I've been sharing on how you can improve your leadership craft, and you're interested in having me expand on them with your team and organization, I'd like to invite you to check out my speaking page on our website at tavernasir.com to learn about some of the topics I can discuss at your upcoming event. And now I'd like to introduce my guest for this episode, Joe Mull. Joe is a respected authority on cultivating commitment in the workplace. In fact, he's written three books on it, including his latest, Employalty, How to Ignite Commitment and Keep Top Talent in the New Age of Work, which is what Joe and I will be talking about today. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the Leadership Biz Cafe. I am so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Joe, your book has an interesting word that I'm sure some people will understandably misconstrue its meaning. So to start things off, I'd appreciate it if you could explain what exactly employalty is and how you came up with this concept for how leaders can engender employee commitment. Well, first of all, you already get 10 bonus points for pronouncing it correctly. It is, <laughs> it is employalty. And it's funny, when if I knew that this would be a tricky word for some folks, I'm, I might not have committed to it because I've gotten employality and employability. But yeah, employalty, when you look at it, you think it means employer loyalty. But we're kind of playing a little bit of a trick on the reader with good intentions. Uh, we have accepted for a long time uh, or expected for a long time that in exchange for employment, we should get loyalty from employees. But if you've led teams for more than 10 minutes, you know that we need to do a little bit more than that to actually get people to join an organization care about the work that they're doing, give it all they've got, and then stay long-term. And so the word employalty is actually a mashup of employer loyalty and humanity. So we analyzed more than 200 research studies and articles on why people decide to take a new job or leave their current one or decide to stay with their employer. And we can say with conviction that organizations that win in three areas of the employee experience much more easily find and keep devoted employees. And those three areas of the employee experience really are about remembering that people have lives outside of work, remembering that we can't just view people through the, the lens of the tasks and duties of their jobs. We actually need to care about the degrees to which work inflicts suffering or imparts joy. And so employalty is really made up of three factors. We call them ideal job, meaningful work, and great boss. So with this understanding, I'd like to explore each of these three factors of employalty with you, Joe. As you mentioned, employalty involves the three factors of ideal job, meaningful work, and great boss. Now, ideal job consists of three elements, compensation, workload, and flexibility. And what I find fascinating about this factor in your employalty model is the idea that what we want to accomplish here is shifting our mindset from that idea of hiring the best person for the job to creating the best job for the person. So with this in mind, let's start with the first element of compensation. Now, we've all seen the various data findings about how wage growth for the majority of employees has been stagnant for decades, while CEO wages have experienced exponential growth in the same time period. 
And in this section of your book, you state that what we want to do here is move beyond the idea of providing a living wage and instead focus on offering what you call generous pay to help create an ideal job that will drive employee commitment. So could you describe what generous pay is and the role it plays in employalty? Yeah, so generous pay really can mean a couple of different things. We we know that when it comes to effort on the job, pay and benefits have very little effect. So for example, when I do workshops and and keynotes, I will ask the audience, what motivates employees to care and try at work? And sometimes I'll use like polling software, if you've ever seen that, where you can answer on your cell phone and you get that little word cloud up on the screen where the answers that, that are being given the most appear bigger. And it never fails. The answers that are uh, given the most are are pay, money, wages, uh, compensation. This idea that my pay determines my effort is just a complete falsehood. It's a myth. We know that pay and benefits have very little to do with whether or not an employee cares and tries. They have everything to do with whether or not an employee joins and stays. But once we get compensation right for someone, once they no longer believe they're being underpaid, it is off the table as an influencer of effort with one exception, the idea of generous pay. So there's some psychology behind this, the idea that if I feel like my pay is truly generous, that I am getting more here that I might be able to get elsewhere, or that I'm getting so much here that it would be impossible for me to get it elsewhere, that actually supercharges loyalty. And it does this for a couple of reasons. First of all, we know that if I'm getting generous pay, the the likelihood of me being able to go find that elsewhere is so low that I get this mentality of, hey, I don't want to screw this up, right? There's there's a real sort of uh, lottery ticket that I'm holding here around my employment. The second thing is that it is in our human nature for us to be what we call in the book matchers. This is something that, that Adam Grant has talked about on his podcast as well in that we tend to not be be takers or givers as much as we are matchers. We want to return what we are being given equally. So when we're given generous pay, we want to repay it by giving generous effort, generous commitment, generous loyalty. And when we define how do you calculate generous pay, there are a couple of different ways you can do it. You can look at where where are our positions in the market. And we want to be in the top 5%, for example, maybe around salary or, or benefits compensation. Or in some organizations, we're seeing employers who look at what is the the disposable income that our employees have? Are they living paycheck to paycheck? Or after they pay all their bills, do they have something left so that they can save, so that they can uh, contribute to their kids' college, so that they can take a vacation every once in a while? When you start to look at these factors around wages, we know they have a direct influence on commitment, and generous compensation is a big part of that. So with this in mind, Joe, I think you've set us up to discuss the next element of the ideal job factor, and that is workload. And the reason's because as I was reading this chapter, Joe, I felt like this is probably the most controversial concept you share in your book, because what you advocate for here in terms of creating employee commitment is for employees to not only work less, but to do less work. And I'm sure it feels controversial to those listening, especially after we just discussed why you need to pay your employees more. So could you break this down for us for why this is actually a good thing, not just for your employees, but for the growth and longevity of your organization? 
Right. Well, we're paying for the sins now of the uh, the transformation that we've been driving in the workplace for years. So we've all been a part of organizations that committed to productivity and efficiency and doing things as fast as possible. And the result has been over the past few decades that we've taken the work of three people and foisted it onto two people and then eventually onto one person. And we've reached a place and we have a ton of data and I, and you know I'm not going to bore you with the stats. We put a lot of this in the book. We have all sorts of evidence that tells us the the workload that the average individual contributor is carrying at work has exploded in recent years. Managers, for example, have more than 30% more direct reports than they did just seven or eight years ago. Uh, we know that the average American, for example, here in the U.S., works 46 hours a week. We, we actually are, are uh, one of the only countries on earth that does not have a law limiting the length of the work week. Uh, so we know that the amount of work one person has been expected to carry and perform on a daily, weekly, monthly basis is really higher than it ever has been before. And at the same time, when you run a, a, an engine, a car engine at the top RPMs all the time, what's eventually going to happen? It's going to give out. And when something happens in your organization, when you actually really do need to go faster or you do need people to give more, if you've been running them at 100% the whole time, there is no more to give. The pedal's already to the metal, so to speak. But if you end up at, you know, operating at workloads sitting around 80 or 85% thresholds, you actually have a little bit of space. You have a little bit more to give as an employee when something happens at work that requires you to step up or rally or or get through it together, there was actually, and I don't have it in front of me, so maybe I can send it to you. You can link it in your show notes. But there was a, a study that came out just a few weeks ago. It was making the rounds on LinkedIn that said that 85% seems to be the sweet spot in terms of work capacity for this very reason. Uh, we've been talking a lot in the workplace about burnout, and there's been a ton of bad advice given about how to overcome burnout at work. But the truth is people are exhausted at work from all the work. And we actually, when we create some space in people's day for them to connect with one another, for them to participate in learning, for them to uh, you know, just catch their breath and think and reflect, it actually goes a long way to making work more effective for people who are doing work. I think this is especially important when we think about the future of work with developments like AI, where we know we're heading towards a future where technology is going to remove a lot of the rote work so many of us can do, so we can free up our time to focus on things AI can't do, which is to be creative and connect to spare thoughts or ideas to conjure up new solutions and new avenues. And we have to recognize here that, as you just said, we shouldn't expect our employees to operate at the same level or to the same degree as AI because we're not robots. And neuroscience has shown that when it comes to our sense of creativity, it requires not only that we take breaks from work and thinking about work, but that we allow our minds to wander and think about other things so we can discover those unlikely connections that exemplifies our sense of creativity. So I think it's another thing that we have to realize if we're now recognizing this impact AI is going to have on the future of work, that it's going to allow us to address being more creative in how we approach our jobs. Then, as you pointed out, with an engine on the car, you can't expect people to be creative if you're expecting them to be gunning it all day, every day on the job. 
And and to your point, which is so spot on, is you know the debate right now is that you know AI is coming for all of our jobs. No, people who know how to use AI are coming for all of your jobs. Right? We're not going to be replaced by AI. If we're going to get replaced, it's going to be by people who have learned to use it effectively, and it is a tool. And you know the the the. Uh, <laughs> The labeling of it as evil in the workplace is the same conversation that took place when email showed up. And it's the same conversation that took place when electricity came into our homes, right? This is just another tool that has the potential to allow us to work smarter and to work better. And you're absolutely right. If if I can use AI to do something in one hour that used to take me seven, that not only frees me up to do other things for my organization, it frees me up to be a, a better performer because it creates the exact kind of space that you just described. So speaking of space, I think this helps us segue into the third element in this factor of loyalty. And it's one that's the source of much debate and discussion these days, and that is flexibility. And one point I appreciate that you bring up here is challenging the notion that a hybrid work environment is the same as flexibility. As we see in so many cases where organizations push some RTO mandate, the focus of the senior leadership is on dictating what days employees will be allowed to work outside the office and which days they are expected to be working in the office. And I love how you point out that what people want is knowing they have the autonomy to decide for themselves when and where they work and that their bosses focus instead on the outcomes of their collective efforts. So how do we make this shift, Joe, where we go about addressing flexibility at workplace in a way where we're avoiding the kinds of debates and friction we're seeing right now over remote and hybrid work opportunities. Yeah, it comes down to figuring out how you can grant people some power and control over where, when, and how they work. Because what works for somebody who is single and 22 might be very different than how somebody like me who is 46 and has three kids wants to work. Now, people will hear that and think, well, then the inmates are running the asylum, so to speak. How can we have consistency and predictability? I'm trying to run a business here. People can't just pick and choose when and where and how they work all the time and, and ignore the, the obligations that we have. And all of that is true too, but two things can be true at once. When we talk about flexibility, we're talking about giving people some influence over some aspects of their work. Maybe that's the length of my shift or the start time or the end time or what days I work in the office versus at home. Maybe it's having some influence over who I work with, when I work, the locations I go to. Maybe it has something to do with the order in which I complete my tasks. What we know is that as human beings, we have some fundamental needs that contribute to our development and ultimately our mental health and fulfillment. And if you, you know, if you look at all of those Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you, you look at sort of what we need as human beings to be well-functioning members of society, you know, at the bottom of that pyramid is food, clothing, and shelter. And then one step up is relationships and love. And, and one step up from that is some influence over our lives, some control over the what happens to us on a day-to-day -day basis. 
And so if you can grant some of that to your employees, you can give them some influence over where, when, and how they work, it supercharges loyalty. And then people, you add these ingredients together for that ideal job, compensation, workload, and flexibility, and people look around and they say, wow, this job fits into my life like a puzzle piece snapping into place. That cuts down on people's interest in leaving. That increases their interest in doing a better job for your organization. That's where flexibility plays a key part. Flexibility is designated now as the number one most requested workplace benefit in the world. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Joe, I'd like to move to the next factor employee as it's my favorite one because I often give keynotes around this factor. And this one is meaningful work, which consists of purpose, strengths, and belonging. So let's start with purpose. And I love how you write here, one way leaders can foster a sense of purpose is to get more intentional about the kind of recognition you provide to your employees, where we not only have to be timely and specific in our recognition, but we have to highlight how the unique contributions our employees make a difference to our team, to our organization, or to the customers we serve. So could you elaborate on how we go about communicating recognition so that it engenders a sense of purpose within our employees? Well, first of all, I love that you have a favorite aspect of employalty. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm so appreciative of the time that, that you spent with, with the book and with the model that we, we write about because you know, we, we've spent a lot of years telling leaders that there are a lot of things they have to get right, telling business owners and executives that there are a lot of things that they have to get right. And it, it ends up feeling like we have to memorize a doctoral dissertation's amount of research. And so the whole the whole reason we wrote this book was to really keep it simple, was to say, hey, commitment and retention will appear when you give people their ideal job doing meaningful work and give them a great boss. And then we just break down each of these factors into these dimensions that you and I are talking about. So I'm so grateful to you for being willing to, to get into the nuance of this. But you are right that there's a recognition component here around purpose that is critical. And one of the things that we've gotten wrong for years is how to recognize employees. One of the questions I get asked a lot in workshops and in keynotes is, we're trying to create a, a new recognition program. What do you find are the best programs that work? And my answer is no program. Because most programs are about gamification or they're about tenure, right? They're about time or they're about earning points or getting certain kudos from a certain number of notes from customers, whatever that looks like. We know the most effective recognition programs, quote unquote programs, right? That word in air quotes is actually just hearing from someone else that something specific that I did made a difference for them. And so if we really want to get better at recognition, we have to teach leaders how to become better storytellers. We have to teach leaders how to articulate the specific behaviors that someone used and the way that it made a difference to me. So for example, most of us, after a busy day at work, might walk by members of our team on the way out at the end of the day and say, hey, thanks so much. I, mean, I, know, I know we had a really busy day today, but you all stepped up and, and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Great job today. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it could be better. We, we should do that. But if we take it one step further and we add a layer of specificity to it, we supercharge it in terms of the effectiveness it has on a person's psyche. And so here's an example. 
maybe I walk by my team at the end of that super busy day. And I say what I just said, hey, everybody, we had a, a really a killer of a day today. And, and you all stepped up and put so much effort in. And you know what, Sue, I, I noticed that even though we were slammed, you a couple times came out from behind the front desk and helped our elderly patients get their coats on before they left the doctor's office here. Uh, and, and Jim, I noticed that you went out twice and shoveled the walkway because it just kept snowing like crazy just to make sure that nobody would fall. And, you know, I, I know, you know, uh, Jane, that that phone just kept ringing. And even after it rang all day long, you still sounded so warm and friendly and helpful to the 302nd person that you talked to uh, today that I, I just don't even know how you do it. I marvel at your ability to bring that kind of positive energy and warmth to those conversations after such a long day. So, you know, each and every one of you uh, just keep bringing your gifts and your talents and your effort to this. And I'm so grateful. And, and when you hear that, when you hear that specificity, what happens is, wow, my boss notices my contributions and my boss appreciates them and is able to give voice to them. And it 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 paints a picture of the difference that I make in the lives of others, which in a, a lot of times from a recognition perspective, we want that to be about customers, but it doesn't have to be. And the example I just gave, I was talking about a doctor's office. So maybe the difference you all in the, on the team made today was for me as a manager. Maybe it, maybe the difference you made were for the, the clinicians in the back who have had a, a killer patient load all day. But if we can create line of sight between the tasks and duties of someone's job and the difference it makes in the lives of others, and we can communicate that with specificity, we supercharge purpose and thus meaningful work. Joe, I'd love to talk about this more, but I want to make sure we have time to talk about the other factor of employalty. So let's look at the next element here about meaningful work, that of strengths. Again, this is something that comes up in some of my leadership keynotes. And what I appreciate here is how you not only challenge leaders to move beyond thinking, improving employee performance means focusing on your employees' weaknesses, to being about providing more opportunities for employees to tap into their strengths but also how we use their strengths to help us define what tasks and responsibilities we assign to our employees, which brings us back to that point of not looking to hire the best person for the job, but instead we work on creating the best job for our employee. So could you elaborate on how we go about doing this, Joe? Well, this I think is probably one of the the, the harder experiences to create for employees because it forces you to reject decades of thinking around employment, which is that I create a position description. I list anywhere from five to 105 responsibilities or duties that are supposed to live with this person. And then I need them to do all of those things well. And if they do, woohoo, they're a success in that role. And if they don't, well, then I'm going to coach them up or coach them out. And the truth is that the chances of finding someone who is able to excel in every aspect of a position, either at first or eventually, is pretty low. But if we can find someone who brings a certain number of gifts to a role, and then we're able to tailor that role around those gifts, we're actually going to get a higher degree, not just of performance from that person in that role, but of commitment from that person. So for example, if you hire someone in to work as an administrative support person, and there we write about this example in the book, and they're really good on the computer at graphic design and organizing information and the materials that they produce are exceptional, but they're really bad with names and faces and phone numbers. 
you're going to spend a lot of time trying to figure out, hey, how do we how do we fix this? How do I coach you up from poor performance around names and faces and phone numbers to at a minimum mediocrity? And at the same time, we're asking this person to put forth more time and effort in the very thing that maybe doesn't come naturally to them. And so they could end up spending a lot of time going home, feeling not successful, feeling dejected, and maybe start to not feel fulfilled in their work. But what if you looked at that person and you said, wow, there's a real set of gifts and strengths and talents here around some of this work with design and information organization. Can we throttle up that part of their job while potentially tweaking around the edges of that job to reduce the number of things that they're mediocre or less than at? This requires a little bit more of a hands-on partnership with their boss to make that possible. But this has been shown in tons of, of studies and organizations as having a direct impact on employee engagement. The, the, the brilliant folks over at Gallup has been, have been writing about this for years. Uh, there's a term that, that's been called job crafting, which really describes what this is, which is tweaking around the edges of a role so that people are able to spend more time in what they excel at. So in the example, I just use, you know, maybe that means moving this person into a position where they're using those strengths full time and finding somebody else who has the, the other gifts that you need to, to supplement that. Or maybe it's just finding a way to give more of those responsibilities that they're really good at to this person and accepting that when they do have to touch these other things, it may not be at the level that you want, but that doesn't make them a poor performer. Instead of spending all of our time and effort trying to coach people up to mediocrity, when we go all in on their strengths, we get higher performance and we get higher loyalty. Okay, so the last element needed to create meaningful work is to create a sense of belonging. Now, just like with compensation, fostering a sense of belonging is another casualty of the current economic uncertainty, with many organizations starting to cut back on their various DEI initiatives as a cost-saving measure. But if we want to drive employee commitment, not just amongst employees who belong to various minoritized groups, but within our entire workforce, creating a sense of belonging needs to be top of mind. So, Joe, what should leaders and organizations be doing, especially at a time where we're seeing more and more division occurring within various societies and countries that will have an impact on our workplace? Yeah, there, there's a, a multiple layers of work that we need to do as organizations here. Uh, I, I think the first way, layer for belonging exists around what we might call camaraderie. You know, we've known for years that people will reject a job offer, will reject leaving an organization at times simply because they like the people that they work with and they don't want to leave that team or that organization. They, they, they recognize how good they have it when, when that piece is in place. So what we know is that when you can help people find things in common with each other that, that don't have to do with work, right, that aren't about the tasks and duties of my job, we access each other's humanity. We see each other beyond the lens of just the, the ways in which they contribute at work. If you and I figure out that we have a mutual love of fishing or we have kids the same age or we're both runners, for example, then the next time one of us has a bad day or, or there's a blunder, Instead of going, oh, that guy, we're going to be much more likely to say, oh, good person having a bad day. We're going to be more forgiving and more tolerant and more likely to step up and say, how can I help? And so at that very basic level, belonging does come back to camaraderie and the fostering of those relationships. 
But it also goes deeper than that because it it gets into the experiences of inclusion and exclusion. When you look at those top reasons why someone leaves an organization, we know that belonging is one of the top three reasons. In in a huge study that came out from McKinsey just a year or so ago, it was actually the number three highest ranked reason why someone leaves an organization. I didn't feel like I belonged at work. And when you drill down on that data, What we understand is that when people experience exclusion, not feeling like they're a celebrated, valued member of a team, not feeling like they are accepted and celebrated for who they are, this is cancerous to an organization. It forces people out the door. And so this is where, yes, for years, organizations have been starting to finally commit to doing deeper work around diversity, equity, and inclusion. But it goes down more in beyond conversations about what our differences are. It's really looking at what are the ways in which we accept and celebrate those differences? What are the ways that we make sure we have representation across our organizations? How are we lifting up voices that are often pushed to the margins? If I am a member of an underrepresented group. And we can we can take the, the the top checklists and think about racial differences, gender differences, sexual orientation, but we can go beyond that to neurodiverse employees, people with different abilities, even just people at different stages of their life, people who are in relationships and not in relationships. When we work to create a psychologically safe environment where everyone is celebrated, we cut down on instances of exclusion. And that actually creates that environment that people want to be a part of. It makes it much more likely that they're not going to want to go someplace else because I quote unquote, like the people I work with. So Joe, our conversation so far about employee commitment has focused on the jobs we offer and now in terms of the environment we provide. So let's look at the last factor of employalty where we look at ourselves as a leader and it's what you call being a great boss, which entails coaching, trust, and advocacy. So let's start with the first element of coaching because here again, we see a lot of reports of how, especially within the millennial and Gen Z segments of the workforce, there's a big demand for bosses to serve as coaches and mentors to help these employees learn and grow. And yet we also see how many of these employees have a high turnover rate, not because they're lazy, but because they often find they're working for bosses who are more interested in telling them what to do than in helping them identify what they know and understand so they can determine for themselves what they should do next to achieve the outcomes we assign to them. So what do leaders need to be doing here so that we're not just telling people what to do, but we're guiding them? to help them discover solutions and opportunities to deliver on the potential we saw in them when we hired them. Well, I'm I'm so grateful for the time that you spent to really define coaching around this, because when we hear the word coaching, we often think of, you know, someone standing on a sideline with a whistle around their neck and who is yelling at people or telling people what to do. And, And you just put a perfect frame around it where it really is not about telling someone how to do someone something. It's asking them, it's mining them for their insights and their creativity and their perspective. And we know there is a direct link between uh, emotional and psychological commitment in the workplace and coaching. We, We know that there's a lot of social science research that tells us that when employees experience coaching from their direct supervisor, they are significantly more likely to not just be a longer term employee, but to have that emotional and psychological commitment. 
And so this is a skill development piece. Coaching conversations don't come naturally for most managers. Most people who go into management roles, especially frontline and mid-level managers, are bringing their experience with them. I used to do this job. They like being knowledgeable and valuable. They've come to be relied on by the team who can pop into their office or fire off a, a, an email or a Slack message that says, hey, how do you want me to handle this? And they spend a lot of time answering those questions, telling people what to do. But coaching is taking a moment to ask the person asking the question what they think they should do. It's moving through a set of open-ended questions to create self-actualization. So it's having in their metaphorical pocket a whole host of questions that they know to ask in those moments when somebody does pop their head in their office to say, hey, how, how did you want me to handle this paperwork that came in late past the deadline? It would be really easy to go, Hey man, we we just talked about that in the huddle this morning and you got an email about it last week. Go look at the email. Like, come on, we're busy around here. But in that moment, when a leader says, okay, well, what options do you see? And then they stop talking like I just did. And they wait. There's a shift, an actual shift that takes place in the part of their brain that that employee is using to participate. It goes from them showing up as a receiver of information to then having to move into memory and critical thinking. And it turns out that when you give people at work an opportunity to engage in critical thinking and creativity, their commitment goes up. So coaching is both the, the method and the experience that people need to have in order to supercharge commitment. And so we need to develop this skill as leaders. We need organizations to commit to teaching leaders at all levels how to be coaches. And we need those leaders to go through the painstaking steps of practicing those skills and being willing to be bad at it for a while before they get good at it. Yeah, and I think what's needed for us to become effective at coaching is actually the next element that you describe here of what's required to be a great boss, which is trust. And I think most leaders would say they intuitively understand what it means to be a leader who trusts his employees. And yet we've all seen the various studies like the Eidelman Trust Barometer, which has shown employees continue to have low levels of trust for leaders. So for a leader out there who probably might now should be thinking, maybe I'm not as trusting a leader as I think I am, what are some steps they can take right now to start rebuilding their relationships with their employees and begin that process of fostering trust? Yeah, I, I am friends with uh, David Horsehager, who runs the the Trust Institute, and he has written several books on trust. And he will tell you there are a multitude of dimensions to trust. There are a number of things we have to get right. It's one of the reasons I interviewed David for this book, because he's just genius level about this stuff. And one of the things that came out in our conversation and that also shows up in a bunch of other social science research out there is that in order to earn trust, you must first grant trust. You actually have to create an experience for people at work where we trust them first, maybe even before we know them. We need to give people the opportunity to fail. We need to give people the opportunity to make mistakes. We need to give people the opportunity to impose their thinking, their creativity, their judgment on their work. And yes, that might mean that they don't get it right or that it's not perfect from the first time. But 
you know, I was thinking about this the other day as I watched my six-year-old son pouring himself a glass of milk in our kitchen. And that is a precarious situation. If you've ever watched a six-year-old pour a glass of milk on the <laughs> island in the kitchen, right? Because the gallon looks like it weighs 107 pounds to him. And he's pouring it into the cup. And if, if, if at any point there's this one movement in the wrong direction, that little plastic cup is going to tip over and all that milk is going to go flying. And he's probably going to drop the gallon and it's going to spill everywhere. And I had that moment where I wanted to reach in and grab it and steady his hand, but I went, no, he needs to learn how to pour a cup of milk himself. So I'm going to accept the fact that I might have to clean up a mess because it's going to contribute to his learning. And I stood there and yay, Henry nailed the pouring of the milk. (laughs) And we, we need to do this at work. Sometimes we need to be willing to grant trust to people. The other thing that we need to do, my friend, is that we need to earn trust by demonstrating that we are committed to what's in the best interests, not just of the company, but of the employee. So am I working to demonstrate that I am competent? Am I working to understand the challenges that they face in their jobs? Do I show up every day and put forth the effort to to give them the the uh the time and space that they need to do their work properly? Am I giving them credit when we have a success? Am I taking the blame when things don't go well? Trust can be fleeting, it can be fragile, but we know that these are the things that we have to do to earn trust. Okay, Joe, I'd like for us to discuss the last element here for being a great boss, and that is advocacy. In addition to trust, I think this is the other element we're seeing leaders let fall by the wayside, thinking of it as something that's only pertinent during good economic conditions. But if we are to make our team and organization a place people want to work for, we can't simply be looking at things from our perspective of what we need, but we also need to be taking into consideration what our employees need, not just in terms of their growth and development, but also in terms of how we can help them have a great work experience. And as you point out in your book, advocating for your employees doesn't require grand gestures on our part, but It's just that we show our employees that we care about them beyond their roles or titles they hold within our organization. So with that in mind, what are some things that our listeners can do to get better at advocating for their employees? Well, let's think about what an advocate does. An advocate is someone who works in the best interests and on behalf of someone else. And so the first question really is, am I doing that for each of the people that is in my charge? Do I show up every day? and ask myself, how do I create the conditions here for these people to thrive? That That's both my favorite definition of leadership and a part of what it means to be an advocate. And so if, if you're going to create an environment that becomes what we call in the book, a destination workplace, you have to be committed as a leader to caring more about, about than what is just the tasks and duties of their job. You have to care about more than than that. You have to care about who this person is outside of work. You have to care about the ways in which this job impacts their life outside of work. You have to at least know a little bit about their story. Uh, I can't tell you the number of leaders that I've encountered who work in a building full of people that they walk by in the hallway every day and will tell me, I don't need to know their names which is really just a way of robbing people of their humanity. If I don't even need or care to know your name, then how am I creating a humane employee experience that makes you want to be a part of what we're doing here? 
Now, does that mean I have to remember the, the names of all 2,000 people in the building? Of course not. But I should make an effort to at least connect with as many people as I can that I see regularly. So this is a part of advocacy is do I connect with the person's humanity? Do I know their story? Do I know a little bit about their life outside of work? There's a career piece here too. Do I understand what they love about what they do and where they want to go? Do I do I work to contribute to the trajectory of their career, even if it doesn't include me or this organization long term? That's part of what it means to be an advocate. Being an advocate also requires that we are fighting for the material and the equipment and the information that people need to do their jobs. I used to work with a, a coworker who was a, an HIMS specialist, a health information management systems specialist. And as part of her job, she would run these really complex reports in uh, some pretty sophisticated software on her computer, which was years old. And if you've ever had the experience of overworking your computer where that fan kicks on and it sounds like there's an airplane coming in for a landing, this is what her computer was like. My cubicle was next to hers for a couple of years. So she would run these reports and then just have to sit there and busy herself with other things while her computer made all sorts of interesting noises. It, it was not the right machine for her to be able to do her job effectively. Yet every time she would ask, hey, can I, I need a machine with a faster processor to do some of this stuff. I could actually get these things done faster and more efficiently if we could just upgrade this machine she was told it wasn't in the budget. She was told, well, the, the contract we have with the supplier means we have to keep using that machine for three years, et cetera, et cetera. An advocate says, hold on, we can do better. We must do better. Let's figure out how to make this work for that person. Now, Joe, we've covered a lot of ground here discussing employability and how leaders can make their organization what you call in your book, a destination workplace. And typically when I cover such a wide range of areas for leaders to address, I find it's often helpful to offer some guidance or some steps or measures they can take right now to get things started on making this change. So what advice or suggestions do you have for the leaders listening to us right now for where to get started in this process of transforming their approach and mindset to leading so they can foster greater employee commitment? I so appreciate that because really the whole the whole foundation of this book is that we need to make it simpler, right? Uh, we need to be able to say that there is a one word, a one sentence answer to the question, where does commitment come from at work? Commitment comes from giving employees their ideal job, doing meaningful work for a great boss. And so just that simple concept, I think, is a core takeaway from this conversation. I also think that we just have to remember people generally do a great job when they believe they have a great job. And so if I'm running a business or leading a team and I'm struggling to fill positions or keep people, one of the core questions I need to ask myself regularly is, what would make this place the very best place to be a blank? If you're struggling to hire plumbers, what would make this place the very best place to be a plumber? If you're struggling to hire servers at your restaurant, what would make this place the very best place in our region to be a server? When you do that, you turn the mirror inward and you start solving the problems that might prevent people from wanting to join an organization or is preventing them from staying. And you may end up innovating in some areas that make your job stand out. You may end up creating a competitive advantage for yourself that draws people in, that keeps people there, and ends up turning your organization into a destination workplace. 
Well, Joe, I think you presented a fascinating model here for how leaders can drive employee commitment by deploying these three factors of ideal job, meaningful work, and great boss. And I sincerely believe you help provide some clarity to understanding why we're seeing so much friction between employers and employees these days, as many leaders are clearly creating work environments that don't inspire, let alone empower employees to want to deliver their best efforts. And what we should be doing to turn that tide around and move towards a more healthier, resilient, and beneficial workplace environment for both employer, employees, and those they serve. So thanks for the engaging conversation, Joe, and for the wonderful read. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on today. I love the conversation. If you'd like to learn more about Joe and his book, check out the show notes for this episode on our podcast page at tamvinusier.com slash LBC. And if you'd like to learn more about my speaking work, check out my speaking page on my website where you can learn more about the topics I share in my keynotes and corporate training sessions, as well as what leaders in attendance have had to say about the insights and ideas I shared at these events. Meanwhile, it would be greatly appreciated if you could take a moment here to rate and review my podcast to help others discover and benefit from these insights. I'm Tavin Nasir, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe. 